Good evening. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. John 13, 5 through 17 is our scripture reading, and I'll be making some comments on this passage as well as a number of other passages this evening. John 13, verses 5 through 17. This is God's word. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, And you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great passage, and we thank you for this challenging and important topic of husbands being servants to their wife in their marriage. And we pray that all the marriages represented here, all the marriages that one day will be here, would learn from this great truth. And whether we're married or single, that we would understand what it is to live our lives as slaves and servants of others. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've emphasized the Lord's washing of his disciples' feet uh, to you all many times in the recent past. And this passage I just read, it's a, it's a stunning passage. It astounds and baffles. It, it encourages, rebukes, uh, humbles, and empowers God's people when we read it. And the reason this passage is so remarkable is that it's us. We, we are required uh, by God to know that we're the ones that are to be humble before him. Uh, we are God's servants. We are bond servants of Jesus Christ, the way that Paul always identified himself. We're the ones that are servants of the Almighty God. We know this from the whole Bible. We're told this from beginning to end. 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore, speaking to the Christian people, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in the proper time. We are the servants of Jesus Christ. We're the purchased possession of Christ, the bond servants of Christ. He owns us. And yet, It is he who humbled himself as the lowliest of servants and washed their feet and washes our feet. Who was so very patient with them as he is patient with us. Who was so gracious, so kind and encouraging and loving with them. Jesus, God incarnate, who holds and sustains every atom in the universe by his power and providence, holds it all together. He washed the feet of sinners. He does the same with with us. He washed the feet of his disciples. He does the same with us. 
The very same love with which Jesus loved them is the same love with which he loves all of his purchased children. That's how the king of the kingdom of God, the exalted head of the church, loves his bride day in and day out. Through our ups and downs, through our seasons of faithfulness, our seasons of foolish rebellion, and he does it without fail, without hesitation, without compromise, without special pleading ever. Husbands and husbands-to-be, that's our model. That's our paradigm, our example toward our bride, our wife. Love and lead from below as a servant. Jesus said it in that passage to his disciples in John 13, 16. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Jesus was saying here, I am your master. You are my servants. Now watch how I execute the duties of being your master. I serve you. I serve you. The husband is the head of the wife, we're told in scripture. He's the head of his family, the head of his marriage. Not vice versa. Ephesians 5, 23. The husband is the head of the wife. How are we to function then as the leader, as the head of our marriage? We function just like the Lord Jesus does with his church. We serve. We love. Really, the master serves? The head serves? Yes. The husband is the head of the marriage and of the household. Here is how he functions in that role. He will serve and love her from below as a servant. He will wash her feet. He will exercise patience and tenderness, a listening ear, an understanding heart, a gentle word, compliments, encouragement, constantly building her up, never tearing her down. Jesus, the King and sovereign God of the entire universe, the Lord over all, said in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. God came to serve sinful man. Isn't that amazing? He came to help us. He came to save us. He came to serve, to serve not to be served. He came to die for us. Men, in our marriages, we do, do not assume the role of being served. We assume the role of servant. Our Lord illustrated this leader-servant concept on many different occasions because his disciples were constantly looking forward to being in positions of power and authority and being served. And Jesus taught them, Matthew 20, verse 20, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. So picture this, the, the mother of two of Jesus' disciples comes and gets down on her knees before Jesus. And Jesus says to her, what do you wish? And she says to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on the left in your kingdom. And Jesus eventually says, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do we want to be first? Do we want to be great? You want to be great in the world? Great in the eyes of God? The answer is astonishing. Be a slave then. Be a servant then. If you want to be great in the eyes of God, be a slave. Be a servant. You see, we're so quick to think of greatness the way that the world does. And even 
our own priorities day in and day out, our habits, the things that get our time often reflect that as a matter of fact, we don't think the way that God wants us to think about these kinds of things. Do not measure greatness as the world does, dear congregation. Don't measure greatness the way the world does. Jesus said, if you want to be great, be a slave, be a servant to others, especially in your marriage. Husbands, be a servant to your wife. That's the way the master and head of the church was towards his bride, the church. He washed her feet. He was a servant. Fame and the praises of men, they're here one day and gone the next. If we would aspire to live and move and have our being under the favorable countenance of our Heavenly Father at all times, then let us adopt the mentality of a slave in our marriages first. The master, the head of marriage, the head of the marriage is really supposed to be a slave? Yes, like Jesus was. The master and head of his disciples washed their feet and he served them. The king of kings and lord of lords could have come into the world to be served, but he didn't come to, serve, to be served, but to serve. Husbands and men who will one day be married, we must learn to love our wife with the attitude of a servant. Do that well, your marriage will be really blessed. And I want to encourage you, husbands and husbands to be, never compete in a sinful way with your wife. Never try to one-up her. We lower ourselves to serve. That's how headship and greatness to God works. Be a slave and serve. Remember how Jesus rebuked people who sought the best seats at banquets, who sought recognition in the praises of men, who loved to be called rabbi and loved special greetings in the marketplace? Those same rebukes that Jesus gave to the prideful scribes and Pharisees would be applied to married men who lorded over their wife and expect her to be their personal servant to do their bidding. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And as he washed his disciples' feet, he told them, John 13, 15, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Here's how I want you to be. Like me, the Lord, the master, the head of the church who has the right to be served and to receive whatever service he is pleased to require of all of his redeemed people. He gave us an example of service and has commanded us to follow it, serve. Peter objected to Jesus doing this for him. I see in this passage here a great gospel illustration, a great gospel illustration. Peter objected to this. Jesus comes over to Peter. He's going to start washing his feet. Peter in John 13, 8, you shall never wash my feet, he said to Jesus. And I love Jesus' answer. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If we try to save ourselves, we have no part with Jesus. If we try to contribute anything whatsoever to the finished, perfect, saving, washing work of the Lord Jesus, we have no part with him. If we will not let Jesus, in a sense, do all the washing to wash us clean, he will not be our Savior. Coming to God means we come on his terms, meaning we don't rely upon our works, but on Christ's alone. If Christ does not serve us in that way, to wash us perfectly, legally to clean us in the sight of God, we have no part with him, he told Peter. He and he alone does all the saving, all the washing, on the basis of his own personal righteousness, by which he alone has earned the right for us to eat from the tree of life and live forever, thus fulfilling the terms of the first covenant, the covenant of works with Adam in the Garden of Eden. 
Jesus does that work vicariously. He's the last Adam, the second Adam. He enters into that broken covenant and achieves it all for us. He's got to do all the saving, all of it. As I was thinking about that illustration from the text, I remembered a story from long ago, long time ago. My mother invited a bunch of my dad's friends to meet them and to meet myself, my sister, and, and some other folks from church at one of my dad's favorite restaurants to celebrate my dad's birthday. And I was about 12 or 13 years old at the time. And I remember very clearly, we got there early and my mother spoke with the manager and the waiter about the check. And my mother was going to pay for all of it herself because she really wanted to do this for my dad. It was to be her gift to him. And she was very emphatic to the manager and to the waiter. Please don't put the check on the table. I am paying for this. If you put it on the table, our friends will try to pay for it themselves or to contribute to it. This is my special gift to my husband. I remember her saying that. This is my gift to my husband. And sure enough, when the meal was over, the waiter dropped the check in the middle of the table in front of everybody. A meal for about 13 or 14 people. And immediately, one of my dad's friends grabbed the check and he was going to pay for it. And my mom saw this. She immediately insisted that she had talked to the waiter and talked to the manager. And they were supposed to give her the check because she's going to pay for it. But a couple of my dad's peers being hard-headed, they were absolutely insistent. We're paying for this or we're going to help pay for it. And what was so memorable about this to me was the fact that my mother, knowing her as well as I did, she was about to burst into tears. Because these guys did not get it. They didn't get, this was her gift. She wanted to give to her husband at her expense for his birthday. And if they paid it, it wouldn't be her gift anymore. It would not be her accomplishment for her husband anymore. And when our family friends saw, I saw these men, they saw, she was getting ready to cry. Uh, They finally gave her the check and let her get the bill. I was very relieved when that happened. You know, sometimes other cultures have weird traditions and odd cultural stuff that it's hard for us to understand unless we're really part of that culture. But what a gift is, is not one of those strange concepts. That's the same in every culture. Everyone in every culture knows what a gift is. If we paid for it, if we earned it, if we did something in part for it or something to help earn it, it's not a gift anymore, is it? In the end, every form that false gospels can take misses that point. The gift character of salvation. The gift character of eternal life. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Paul said, for all have sinned, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift. That Greek term, doreon. Doreon, as a gift. We're justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That term, doreon, as a gift, means without payment. You look it up in the lexicon, it means without payment. Something someone else bought for you and gives you freely. You know, you put up a for sale sign over your merchandise. Some people might stroll by and, you know, take, take a second look. But if you put something in your front yard and put the big sign that says free, it disappears very quickly. Because people know what that means. The wages of sin is death, Paul said in Romans 6.23. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We all understand what a gift is. A gift. 
Paul said in Galatians 2.21, I don't set aside the grace of God. I don't, I don't nullify the grace of God. If righteousness comes to the law, if, if we got into heaven in some way, even just a little bit by our works, if our works were somehow folded into our definition of faith or something, then Christ died in vain. Then you've nullified the grace of God altogether. It's not a gift anymore then. He also said in Galatians 5, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised. He's a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You don't understand this is a gift that God wants to give to you. The Galatian heresy, which destroys and nullifies the grace of God and destroys and nullifies the gospel of Christ, which Paul so vigorously refuted, simply says this. Here's the, the Galatian heresy. Here's every false gospel you'll ever hear. The shed blood and righteousness of Christ that we receive by trusting in Jesus alone is not enough by itself. It's not enough by itself to get you into heaven unless you add X, Y, or Z to that. In other words, the only saving gospel and the gospel taught in scripture, the only gospel that can save is this. The legal grounds of the sinner's justification before God is Christ's death, paying the punishment for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And Christ's obedience to the Ten Commandments, his obedience to the law, his personal righteousness, which is imputed or accredited to our legal account before God as the basis of our verdict on the day of judgment. And we receive that verdict, we receive that gift by belief alone. What that means is we rely upon Christ alone. And our faith in Christ is in no way, please hear me, faith in Jesus Christ is in no way synonymous with obedience or good works. In fact, from beginning to end in scripture, faith in God, that is saving faith, is the diametric opposite of law-keeping and works. And if your understanding of what faith is includes law-keeping or works, you have fatally disrupted the gospel, fatally destroyed the gospel. Faith, being justified by faith, faith in Christ means simply looking to Christ for salvation. You are relying upon him. It's like, I believe that that chair can hold me. I believe that it, it can. How do you know if I'm actually trusting in it, though? I got to sit on it, right? It's the same thing with the Lord Jesus. It's one thing to believe that he can save. It's another to be relying on him. What is your confidence in for getting into heaven? Christ alone, nothing else. Faith is not works. Faith is not obedience. Faith is not covenant faithfulness. Faith does not include anything other than simply receiving and resting upon the finished work of someone else. And any other way of looking at salvation causes it to cease to be a gift. Peter, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part with me. He says, you shall never wash me, Peter. There's a symbolism here that you'll understand later. You know, my mother really wanted that to be her gift. I could see the, the wellsprings in her eyes, and she was starting to get really upset because those guys were not going to let her get that whole check. It was pretty big. But they finally let her do it and because that was my mom's gift to my dad. She really wanted to pay for all that. The moment we think we've added anything, anything at all to the finished work of Christ, which is ours by belief, by trust alone, in Jesus alone. We destroy grace, we destroy the gospel, we destroy the gift character of salvation. Being a Christian requires that we rely only upon him for heaven, for justification, for eternal life, for our salvation from the wrath of God against our sins, and for our own personal right to take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, what Adam would have had he obeyed God, had he withstood that temptation, he would have earned the right by pure personal merit to eat from the tree of life. But you see, if we're going to go to heaven, someone else has got to do that for us, has to earn by pure personal merit the right to eat from the tree of life. 
And if you ever hear anyone say, well, if Adam had obeyed, if Adam had withstood that temptation, it still would have been a gift of grace. I want to encourage you, run for your life because a false gospel is coming. There's no grace in the covenant of works because there's no need for grace yet. Because Adam hasn't fallen yet. Grace is God's response to man's sinfulness. There's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Christ alone, by his personal righteousness, he earned that right for each member of his church to eat from the tree of life and live forever. And that's what happens at the end of the book of Revelation. We are invited to go and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. He doesn't say, if you don't let me help you wash yourself, you have no part with me. It's either Christ alone washes us or we have no part with him. And so by way of application to marriage, wives, let your husband wash your feet and serve you. If he's a godly man, he'll desire to do that. And you need to let him do that. Jesus says to his church, in the same way I came to serve, I ask all of you to do the same. Brethren, especially in our marriages, we lead by serving. Jesus led by serving, by laying down his life. Jesus humbled himself and shepherded from below and did the most degrading, menial task that was reserved for the lowliest of house slaves to wash people's dirty feet. Jesus did that. We husbands also shepherd from below and we are to do the menial and the lowly tasks in our house. How do we do that in our marriages? Men, we study our wife. We do everything we possibly can to think of everything that we can and do everything that we can to make her feel loved, to make her feel special, cherished, beautiful, appreciated, cared about. And we sacrifice ourselves, our hobbies, our time, and everything that we want in life, including our very life itself, if we have to, in order to make her happy, to make her feel loved. Really, that radical? That radical, yeah. Matthew 23, 11. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant, said Jesus. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's far too easy for us to think the Great Commission is something we accomplish out there in the world. It's just something that that takes place somewhere else, somewhere other than my living room, somewhere other than my marriage. One of the primary recipients of our efforts to, to grow and glorify Christ's kingdom will be our own marriage relationship. The kingdom of God expands in our love for our wife. Mankind has always had an incredible penchant for missing the obvious. So many married Christian people want to know, how can I really love and serve the Lord? And and they're thinking they're going to hear something like, well, sell everything you have and go wear a pith helmet and sling mud in Africa somewhere. And the answer is, love the person you're married to and enjoy that relationship. Deepen that relationship. Learn to love emotionally. Pray as one before God. Husbands, see that wife as your miracle from God, the way that Adam did. Adam had nothing to do with getting a wife. God made her and gave her to him. She was his miracle woman. That woman you're married to, she's your miracle woman. And recognize that the purpose of your marriage is to make you more like Christ. To kill off more of the old Adam in you. And to bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit more than the fruits of the sinful nature. And so brethren, husbands, we are the servant head who washes the feet of the weaker. Our wife, she needs that from you. She needs that measure of Christ-likeness from you. I wanted to share a direct quotation. I was listening to a lecture this past week and 
just heard this, this paragraph and thought, I want to I wanna read this to you. Quote, I am intentionally messing with men's lives. I've seen arrogance. I've seen using scripture to control and manipulate and to put a woman down to the point that it would make me puke. The arrogance, that arrogance reaps nothing of God's fruit. The woman is not stronger for that. She's not fortified for that. She's not feeling loved. She's feeling controlled and manipulated. The same thing Jesus corrected with his disciples. The new paradigm, you are the servant. I am the servant of the marriage. It's okay. It's going to hurt. Take off your crown. Throw it down. Wash feet. Serve. That's how you really love a woman. You don't love her if you're going to lord it over her and try to control her. That's not love. Control. Forced submission. If you're truly a servant, she will follow because she will know you always have her best interest at heart. You won't have to declare your position of authority. If you have to quote Ephesians 5.23, hey, I'm the head of this relationship. Something's wrong. She should be willing to follow you because you serve well. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 5 quickly here. Ephesians 5, 25 through 29. Just want to look at another familiar passage. As you're turning there, Ephesians 5, 25 and following. For the couples I've done pre-marriage counseling, there's several in this room right here. You'll remember in our first session, we walked through this text. I'll say it again every time I read it. Every time I read it, there's something else I missed. There's some new application. Some new insight that escaped me before. Notice verse 29. You see verse 20? Actually, let me, let me read verse 25 to 29. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Okay, so stop there for a moment. You see why I'm emphasizing the John 13 washing feet passage? What, what does the epistle say? Love your wife just as Christ loved the church. That's how he loved the church. He served her. Served her. And gave himself for her. Verse 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Notice that again. You see verse 29 again? No one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. And this was speaking of the husband's attitude toward his wife. No one ever hated his own body. No one ever hated his own flesh. No, all of us, all of us guys, we all have bodies. And those bodies require maintenance. They require nourishing and cherishing. I want you to consider the time that all of every man in this room, whether you're married or not, spends on a daily basis nourishing and cherishing your body. Cleansing your body, washing your body in the shower, brushing your teeth, combing your hair, if you have any. Preparing and then eating food. It's a lot of time. We spend a lot of time doing that every day. And we don't resent it. We don't grumble when we're hungry or when we're dirty. I can't believe I'm already hungry again. I got to go waste a bunch of time eating now. Or, man, I'm really dirty again. I just took a shower six days ago. I shouldn't be this dirty. Nobody resents doing that. Nobody despises doing that stuff. And Paul says that. It's a, it's a truism. It goes without saying. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. He's saying it should be obvious to you. You're one flesh before the Lord. Nourish and cherish her, just like you do yourself. We have no problem serving ourselves. No problem taking care of all those needs. Why do we neglect to do that with our wife? To love her is to love ourselves, says verse 28 there. 
Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. There's never any hesitation, grumbling, fussing, or whining on my part when I got to serve myself. And I do it every day without fail, without complaining. Glad to eat. Glad to get a drink of water. Glad to brush my teeth. Those are my daily needs. And my wife has daily needs too that only I can meet. Our attention to those needs. Those emotional needs, spiritual needs, physical needs ought to be as automatic, without resentment, without grumbling, and without fail, just as our own service to our own bodies. Your wife has emotional, spiritual, physical needs that you need to meet every day, every day. It's our job to serve her and to meet those needs. To do that well, we have to know what those needs are. And that means we've got to study her. That's what 1 Peter 3, 7 is talking about. Dwell with them in under, with an understanding mind. Dwell with your wife in an understanding way. You're, you're getting a PhD in your wife's name, ology. Remember one of the main points we looked at in the, the first message in this series on the God-centered marriage. Marriage's purpose is to make us more like Christ. That's the whole point of it. That's why God and his sovereign decree and plan and providence, he brought you to the person that you're married to to make you more like Christ. Therefore, husbands and husbands-to-be, the primary thought ought to be in our hearts and minds with regard to our marriage. Please remember this. Please, this is biblical. This is exactly what we're supposed to do. We shouldn't be thinking primarily, how's my wife doing in her marriage to me? But rather, how am I doing in my Christ-likeness to her? That's the main thing. Not how she's doing in her marriage to me. I got to talk to someone about how she's doing in her marriage to me, but rather how Christ-like am I being towards her? Because that's why I got married in the first place in the sovereign plan of God. Keep that before you always and your marriages will be helped greatly. The thing is this, maybe you're in the midst of a marriage where there isn't a whole lot of sweetness. There aren't a whole lot of eye-popping smiles anymore. There's not a whole lot of laughter, grace, fun, kindness, or mercy. But I say to you, the only thing that you can control is what you do and what you do not do. Husbands, put the hobbies and the distractions aside and make it your mountain to climb, your dragon to slay, your mission in life to outserve her every single day. Now, I know I just said, don't try to one up or whatever. I served you better today. You know what I'm talking about. Outserve her every day. Serve, love, dote, serve, love, dote. Show kindness until she can't get that smile off her face. Married men, how many of you are physically stronger than your wife? How many of you could probably win a foot race against your wife? How many of you can probably bench press more than your wife? How many of you need less sleep than your wife? It's because you were made to lead by serving. You have more strength so you can do more dishes. You can sweep more floors. You can wipe more windows, you can cut more grass, you can do more laundry, you can move more furniture, and you can do it all in less than half the time it would take your wife to do it. We have broader shoulders to serve. We have stronger arms to serve. We have a stronger constitution as men to nurture and care longer. You might think, why should I take out the garbage? Here's the answer. Because God made you a man. Why should I do the dishes and wipe all the counters and sweep the floor? The answer, because God made you a man. Why should I be self-disciplined enough to lead family worship every single day without fail? To open God's word and read it every day to my family? The answer, because God made you a man. 
We have the DNA of servanthood in us by divine design because that's the DNA of Jesus Christ. If we would be like our master, we will use our strength to serve our wife. Because, brethren, if, if we can't clean up after ourselves and can't clean up the house, if we're so pathetic we can't even clean up our own clothes or pick up after ourselves, then we are children and we don't deserve our wife's respect. Where does the rubber hit the road here? How do we love in a serving way in our marriage? Here are a few practical things I think will really help. When you get home from work every day or get home and when you see your wife for the first time in the day, ask her, what do you need done? What do you need done? No matter what she says, do it. I need the grass cut, do it. The dishwasher needs empty, do it. Kids need to get out and run around some, do it. The driveway needs to be blown off, do it. The wash needs to be put into the dryer and then run, do it. The kids need a snack. Would you make mac and cheese? Do it. I'm wiped out and need to lay down. Can you take care of the kids in the house for a while? Do it. The moment you get home, find out what she needs and then do it. Remember when you wake up, you're a servant. When you work, you're a servant. When you walk through the door, the primary ministry of service you will perform in life is to your wife. You walk through the door, you're a servant. Just like Jesus said, I've given you an example. Here's how I want you to be. So find out how you can serve by asking. Why is this so practical and loving and great for you to do? Because you're a man. You'll get it done and you'll get it done twice as fast as she can. If it's manual labor of some kind, right? And when you finish one task, go get another task and keep asking her, is there anything else? And then ask her, are you sure? There's nothing else. And when you get a firm, yes, I'm sure, then you're free to go serve yourself and do whatever you want for a little while. Imagine, men, if we did this every single day, how bright that engagement glow would shine right here in our church. Brothers, we really want to love our wife. And I don't mean sort of. I mean really love her. Really love her the way the Lord wants us to. Like he loved his church. Everyone, I mean, every Christian, especially in a Reformed church, every guy can complete that verse. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Yeah, we all know all that. We really want to love her that way. Be a servant. Don't be afraid to play that role, the role of a servant. You can know that it pleases your Lord because it's exactly what he did for us, for his church. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of his disciples, washed their dirty feet. And some men listening to this are thinking, is he really right about this? Is he, is he really right in what he's, the way he's putting all this? Jesus said it. I have come not to be served, but to serve. Husbands, we come to our marriages not to be served, but to serve. It's the primary illustration God uses for his relationship with his church, his marriage. So it makes sense in our own marriages, we would do the same thing. If we would love our wife as Jesus loved the church, right? The second thing, if you have kids and your wife is tired, you put the kids to bed. You put the kids to bed. Generally speaking, put the kids to bed, let your wife rest for a while, and you get the kids to bed. Thirdly, anything that is messy that you see, clean it up. You walk past stuff on the ground, you know it needs to be picked up and put in the trash and you just leave it there. I want to tell you something my father did with me constantly. I would throw my clothes all over the place. I mean, I literally was like pig pen from the peanuts. I made a mess a lot. 
And my father would watch me walk past things that were messy and would watch me do nothing about it. And he would frequently say to me, son, why didn't you pick that up? And he knew the answer. Why didn't I pick it up? Because mom will do it later. Because mom will get it later when she sees it. And he would say, son, if you see something that you can do to help us out, please do it. It's very selfish of you to walk past a mess that you made and leave it there knowing eventually someone will have to clean it up and that in all probability it won't be you. Like so many pieces of good advice my father gave me, I knew it was right. And as long as I could still get away with being messy, I didn't care. But those words stuck to me later when I got married and they're with me to this day. And to this day, I'll see things I know eventually she's going to have to pick them up and by the grace of God, I'll go get it and put it in the garbage can. Fathers and mothers, give your children sound advice. And listen, don't be discouraged if they don't seem like they're taking it or even if they seem like they're only doing that sporadically or even if they seem to ignore it altogether. They do hear you and you are influencing them. You may think you're not, but you really are. You know, my dad does listen to me preach occasionally on the internet and he'll hear me say things like this. And he'll, he'll say to me on the phone, you know, son, I really thought you didn't hear anything I ever said. He's like, no, 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 I, I did, I did. Fourthly, finally, however your, like, your wife likes things to be done, do it that way. However she wants it done, do it that way. You have to take mental notes. And there are things I learned this past week regarding what to clean with that I was not doing right for a long time. Paper towels. Paper towels and washcloths have very different uses in my wife's mind. And I learned that this past week. And I was given actually an analysis, a, a monetary economic analysis of the cost of paper towels. And I was wasting lots of money using paper towels. You use washcloths and then you rotate them and wash them and rotate them on these hooks and move them around and everything else. And brethren, you can't stop learning. You can't stop studying her. You got to keep studying her. And I've not always done that well in my life and marriage. Don't think that from day one, we got home from our honeymoon. What can I do for you, babe? You just let me know. Yeah, this is 25 years of, of making lots of mistakes talking to you. You can never stop getting better and better at keeping her happy, at keeping her feeling loved and listened to and cherished. When it comes to your home, it reflects much on her in the same way that our work reflects on us. Ever wonder why she wants it to look nice? It's because it, it kind of reflects on her. Although I will always cherish Richard's uh, comments and his uh, message that if your house is a mess, it can be an encouragement to other people when they come over that their house is not as messy as yours. There are things that we take pride in that men take pride in. The older women in scripture are commanded to teach the younger women in every local congregation, among other things. They're, they're taught in the word of God to teach them to be sensible in Titus 2.5, to be pure, to be workers at home, to be kind, to be subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will, be, will not be dishonored. That term oikurgos, that term a domestic keeper of the home. You see, men are not domestic keepers of the home. We're not domestic keepers of the home. That's the task that God gave to the wife. What she wants done and the way she wants it done in the home, guys, just do it that way. Defer to her. The call of Christ, the master and head of his, his church, indeed the king of the universe, is so simple. John 13, 15, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And so that wife, that miracle lady that God created and fashioned and orchestrated hundreds of millions of events and life decisions to get you married to is always there 
for you to obey our Lord here. She's always there for you to be able to glorify him by serving her. When zealous Christian men want to do great things for Christ and the kingdom of God, for some odd reason, for some odd reason, being the best servant to their wife they can possibly be, it doesn't seem to even be on the radar sometimes. You want to be an emissary for Christ? You want to fulfill the Great Commission? You want to be great in the eyes of God? Love that woman with all your heart and be a servant to her like Jesus was to his church. What an incredible way for us to glorify the Lord. Serve your wife with all your heart. Outserve her every day. Wear yourself out for her. Put your stronger back and your body into her service by doing the chores and cleaning up and taking care of your own messes. Do this first, guys. Put away the hobbies and the time wasters and get busy serving her. Make that engagement smile last for your entire married life. Get excited about glorifying your Lord by serving and loving that woman. Your marriage is a gift of Christ to make you more like him, to bear the fruits of the Spirit better. Pray as one with your wife. Pray with her. Take her by the hand once a day and pray together. Pray for your marriage in front of her. Exercise patience if she doesn't respond well to your service to her. Just stay at it. Keep doing it. Remember that the intimacy destroyers, sexual immorality, pride, and selfishness. Be a a, a voracious Bible reader. Pray for your marriage with your wife's hand in your hand every day. And may the Lord of glory bless all of our marriages and all the future marriages of those here today that one day will be. And the marriages of all of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren until the Lord comes back. And may those marriages stand as a testimony to the world that there is indeed a God who saves people and changes them and makes them more like himself. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for the precious gift of marriage. I pray for all the marriages represented here that we all would do better loving one another. Pray the husbands would take this to heart. We're called to wash the feet of our wife as Jesus washes the feet of his church, to lay our, our lives down for her. I pray for all the, the future marriages that one day will be, that these messages would stay in people's hearts and minds all the days of their life so they can really know what so few know today, and that is the blessed joy of an intimate, wonderful friendship, companionship with a wife that lasts forever, that lasts all the way through the days of life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.